The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narconon Suncoast. Hello, this is Joni Siegel, and we have with us today, of course... Jason Good. Yes, and I wanted to tell you, first of all, that we decided to change the name of the podcast. We kind of switched around the two different titles, if you will, and make it the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. And that is so the people who are looking for help with addiction, which are the people that we want to listen to this podcast, can find us easily by searching for addiction. So we have done that. Now, this is episode number five. It is. And you have heard a lot from Jason and a little bit from me. And we have a special guest today. So tell us a little bit about the special guest. We do. Um, So I figured... I bring in a guest and give everyone a break from hearing my voice kind of drone on and on about addiction. And so here today we have Derek Heiblem, who is a staff member over at Narconon, Louisiana. Uh, he's been a staff member for about 10 years and he's helped hundreds of people come off drugs. And so I really wanted everyone to hear from him today and get his story. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to have him here. Hello, Derek. Hello, Joni. I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here too. Perfect. So what we're going to want to know is just kind of your story. So let's get right down and dirty with it. And how did you get started on drugs? Unfortunately, like many other people uh, that get started on drugs, I I got started at a pretty young age. Uh, I could say that it was curiosity. I could say that it was peer pressure. But in reality, I wanted to know what it felt like. There was, you know... Something that I sort of had felt for a while was that there was something missing, and when I got high for that first time, it uh, it sort of cleared that up for me, or so I thought. And what was it? I'm going to interrupt you. What was it that you felt was missing? Can you enlighten me on that just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the reality is, knowing what I know now, is that. There were things that I was too scared to confront and things that I was too scared to do in my life, just in terms of, you know, really saying how I felt about things and standing up for myself and standing up for what I believed in and who I was. And and that was with a lot of people, with teachers, with my parents, with friends. I, I have an identical twin brother and there was always just some weird complex that I had about how he was the better looking one and more popular and just all around better in every way than I was. And, you know, you sit in that for a few years and then comes along something that makes you stop thinking about everything that seemed to work all right for me at the time. Of course, I have to interject, Derek. If he's an identical twin, he can't be better looking than you, right? (laughs) Like I said, it's it's not certainly a rational thing, but at the same time, it's what I was thinking. Right. And, you know, later on, I did find out that he actually wound up struggling with the same things that I I was, at least in my mind. Uh, My twin brother never struggled with addiction like I did. Okay. All right. And so who introduced you to drugs? How did that happen? The first time I ever did drugs was actually on a Boy Scout trip. I was 12 years old, and we were visiting Canada, and I smoked marijuana. And I was walking around the streets of, of old Montreal, and we were smoking a joint, and all of a sudden, all the noise in my head stopped. And and I was just walking around and looking at things and looking at the lights and looking at buildings. And I remember the distinct thought of, this is awesome. Okay. Was it, I I don't know if it's okay to ask this, but was it another scout that introduced you to the Oh yeah, it was another another Boy Scout, one of the older scouts at the time. 
Yikes. Okay. So that was marijuana. And then how did it progress from there? So I, I wouldn't have called myself a pothead at the time. You know, there there were fewer and further in between opportunities to, to smoke marijuana at the time. But the way it had made me feel, I liked. And I, I sort of understood that I was going to be looking for similar things in the future. I wound up getting some dental work done when I was 13. And I had a, a bone graft done on my front teeth that had gotten knocked out playing hockey. And I was in a lot of pain. And the dentist had prescribed me Percocets. So I took a few of the Percocets and I was sitting at the kitchen table at my dad's house watching TV. And about 10 minutes after I had taken them, it was like somebody turned a bowl of jello over my head. And, wow. and I just sank into it. And, and I remember thinking, this is this is very different than smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always been a reader. And so I found the bottle of Percocets and I took an extra one. And I read what was on the bottle and I remember seeing it say, may cause dizziness or drowsiness. Alcohol may intensify this effect. And that was something that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And because I'd seen that on other pill bottles in the past and... I have seen it on many pill bottles since that point in time as well. And it became like buzzwords for me. And I would start raiding my friends, parents, medicine cabinets, you know, going over for, you know, 13-year-old hangouts at my best friend's house and things like that. And I, I wasn't doing pills every day by any means at the time. Maybe once every other week, once a week if I was getting quote-unquote lucky. Mm-hmm. And... The habit sort of progressed from there. In the summer after eighth grade, before my freshman year of high school, I met a kid who had just moved into town from California. And he told me that he sold painkillers. And I didn't know a whole lot about it. And he said, these are a whole lot stronger than Percocets. And Percocet was what I had originally been prescribed by the dentist. And I'd taken it several times since then. And I knew what was up. And he was selling Oxycontin, Oxycontin 80 milligram pills. And I bought one for him for $5, which is astronomical now. <laughs> and he said, just do a little piece of it. And I did just a little piece of it. And it was a whole lot stronger than anything else I had been doing. Mm-hmm. And not all that long a time had passed. And I got to the point where I was actually snorting them. And I even got to the point where I was snorting three pills a day. And, and I'm only a freshman in high school now. And one day he didn't have any. Oops. Oh, yeah. It was a big oops. <laughs> and I started to feel really ill. And I was getting sweaty and I was getting antsy. I couldn't stop my legs from bouncing around. I was starting to get cramps in my stomach and in, in my extremities. And, and the only thing I can think about is getting a pill. Mm-hmm. And I, I kept on asking him. I said, how come you don't have any more? What's going on? And he said, man, you're dope sick. Dope sick. Dope sick. Okay. And and I'd never heard of this before. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, when you stop doing opiates, you're going to get ill. They're withdrawal symptoms. Okay. And and it dawned on me. I, I, I was addicted to drugs at that point, and I'd never thought about being addicted to anything. In fact, I, I had been very anti-drugs for 
all the years prior. You know, I'd spoken out with friends about smoking cigarettes and, you know, how we're athletes and you can't be doing things like that and doing drugs is stupid. And, and I was addicted to drugs. And, and it, was, it was a really hard reality, especially at, you know, I, I think I may have been 14 at the time. So and, let me just stop you for a second. So there was no connection between the concept of doing drugs or being a drug addict mm-hmm. and the pain pills that you had been taking for a couple of years. There was like a kind of and a It always seemed kind of? like something that I could just stop. And uh, it always seemed like something that I was doing because I wanted to, not okay. because there would be any real consequences attached to doing them. I get it. You know, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't a reality that I had yet at that, at that point. Right. It was like, yeah, I'm doing this because I want to, because it feels good. I knew that I was doing drugs, but I didn't think I was addicted to drugs at that point. That, now, that's fascinating to me, and that's why when we started the podcast, I kind of wanted to call it Point of No Return, because right. I don't think you were alone in that. I think that a lot of people think, oh, well, I can just stop whenever I want to stop, so therefore, I am not an addict. So tell us more. Absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of like what you were just saying, I think there's a fine line between people thinking that they're experimenting or using recreationally and getting to that point where that's not what it is anymore. They are, they're doing it even if they don't want to do it at that point. And that was, that was the line that I hit right there. Wow. 14 years old. Okay. So that guy, I I hate to call him my friend because we weren't even really that friendly with each other. (laughs) Right. Um, I I asked him, what am I supposed to do? What's going to make me feel better and he said well you have to do more of it and I said well how are we going to do that because you don't have any and I don't know where there is to get anymore and he said well we could go get heroin and I said there's no way I'm gonna do that I'm I'm not gonna use heroin you know that's for you know hardcore addicts and there's no shot and he said okay well I'm gonna go get some and about an hour later I went and I found him and I said let's go and so we went and and I did heroin for the first time And within a month and a half, I was doing quite a bit. And maybe a few months later, I started shooting up. Okay. Off to the races. Yeah, exactly. And and what was your thought process then? Was it just something, I don't know. I mean, what was your, what were you thinking? What were you thinking, Derek? (laughs) Sorry. I've heard that said to me several times throughout (laughs) my life, actually. What were you thinking? Um, (laughs) I mean, in reality, I don't think I was thinking much of anything. I, I get that. I think that it was one of those things where I had gotten really stuck and, and I really didn't know what to do. And I, I, I definitely wasn't okay with going to my parents about it. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't even talk to my brother about it. And, and I didn't really think there was anybody that I felt comfortable or safe to tell because I was ashamed at that point. Right. I, mean, I was doing heroin and I was a young guy. I was a star athlete, star student. I did really well in school and I, I did very well in athletics and a number of different sports um, throughout my whole life. Even even as a drug addict, I performed well. Wow. And but your brother had to know. Because twins, you're close is my understanding. So he had to know. My brother was the first one to start to know. And... That's when I started lying and covering things up very, very well. Mm. And don't get me wrong. My brother did start experimenting with some things, never with hard drugs at the time. You know, my brother would smoke marijuana and I would write it off as, well, I smoked too much marijuana or I had drank too much and that's what was going on. But then my brother started noticing things like, why are your pupils so small? Right. 
And then he started, you know, hanging out with other friends that had experimented with similar things. And they told him what was going on. And he saw the correlation between somebody's pupils being pinned out and actually being on opiates. And that's when it dawned upon my brother. And at 16, that's when I made my first trip to rehab because he did go tell my parents what was going on. And then they searched my room and found all sorts of crazy things and and off to rehab I went. Okay. And what what rehab program did you go to? I went to a rehab in South Florida, to be perfectly honest. I can't even remember the name of it. Was it like a 12-step? It was or? a 12-step, 28-day okay. program. Um, that's not what my mother wanted me to do. My mother wanted me to go to the Narconon program at the time. Really? She knew about Narconon then? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, my... They were having a hard... I, I was just against that, pretty probably because I was against doing anything that my mom wanted me to do at the oh. time. And, <laughs> and I think that there was a part of me that sort of knew that just going to a 28-day program, I sh- could sort of cop out. Because at that point, I wasn't interested in stopping using drugs. I got it. I would tell people what they wanted to hear, and, and I would you know go through the motions of things to get people to leave me alone. But I wasn't interested in stopping yet. So I got back from rehab and the very next day I was back on drugs and I just tried to do a better job of hiding things, you know, waiting all day until, you know, everybody in the house is asleep to get high. Right. And being up all night. And that's actually when I started noticing some of the things that I would have an even harder time hiding. Like I I, I really never slept because I'd be high at nighttime because that's when I could do the drugs maybe fall asleep around, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning, have to get up at, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock for school, and then go to school, somehow get through that and somehow get through wrestling practice, do it all over again. Wow. And and it really, really started to wear me down. When I was eighteen years old, I by the time I was eighteen years old, I was using heroin, crack cocaine, powder cocaine alcohol, marijuana, pretty much everything else I could get my hands on intermittently, you know, the party drugs, so to say. Right. And um, I was in a gas station bathroom getting high, and I don't know how long I'd been in there, but it was a while. And I heard a knock on the door, and I asked, who who is it? <laughs> and the police officer on the other side of the door said, <clears throat> open up, it's the police. Okay. And I had no idea what to do. I was I was pretty freaked out, mm-hmm. obviously. And I opened the door and there was a cop and he said, what are you doing in there? And I, like the smart aleck I was, said, using the bathroom. And he asked me to step out and the door swung shut behind me and there were drugs that had been sitting on the sink of the bathroom, a one of those credit card things that they used to have at full-service gas stations, and a needle and a bag of cocaine and a bag, several bags of heroin. And he talked to me, and my nose is running, and I'm jittery, and all he's really got to do is look at you know the marks on my arms, and he's going to know what's going on. But it seemed like the conversation was going well. I thought he was just going to leave me alone. <laughs> and I actually started to walk away. And he opened the door to the bathroom, shines his flashlight in there, and there's this pile of drugs. And he said, get back over here with some expletives in there as well. And then I was arrested and taken to the police station. And 
I spent the night in jail and they actually released me the next morning. And as I'm walking out of the jail, my, uh, no, it was my mom. My mom pulls up mm-hmm. and I have no idea how she knew because I didn't call anybody. And But I, you were a minor, right? Or were no, you, I was no, 18, you were 18 at the time. Okay. I was 18 right. at the time. Still in high school though. And my mother pulls up and, oh, she was really, really upset, obviously. You know, screams at me to get in the car, and I got in the car, and somehow I managed to talk my way out of going to uh, Narconon again, okay. somehow. Um, at that point, though, I, I there were a number of consequences that I had to deal with at that point. You know, I was on probation with school, I was on probation on the wrestling team, which was very difficult because I had a scholarship for wrestling to go to college. And, you know, now it's like big news. It's not just within the family. I was in the newspaper for getting arrested. And now it's a real big deal. So I actually stopped using drugs for a bit after I went to rehab. Um, I went to just a, a local Another rehab. 12 step, Another 12-step? Another 12-step. Okay. I think it was like 35 days, something like that. Oh, okay. Nothing. One of those weird, one of those weird ones. And... But I stopped for a while because I was also on probation and I was getting drug tested like very regularly. I think my parents spoke with my PO and were like, drug test him all the time. So things are moving along and and I'm starting to feel better. But the problem is within me and internally, I already had drugs in place as a solution to not being able to deal with the things that I considered very large problems for myself at the time. So now I don't know what to do. And basically what I started doing was drinking heavily. Okay. And I went off to, I got through high school. I continued going through probation. By the time college rolled around, my probation officer had said, you're doing so well. We're going to move you to unsupervised probation for the next two years, which is what the rest of my probation sentence would have been. And I was like, oh, okay, this is great. You know, I don't have to check in. But he said, now, look, I'm still going to call you in every once in a while randomly to drug test you, so don't start messing up. And it stuck with me, you know, for a little bit at least. Right. I got to college. I'm doing real, real, real heavy drinking. I mean, every single day, every single night, just getting completely, completely wasted all the time. And maybe, maybe a month and a half, two months in... I meet a kid at a party who I can recognize is on opiates. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see the signs. I know what I know what I'm looking at. Right. And I ask him. I ask him what he's got going on. You know, what do you got? And he told me he had oxycontin, and he told me that they were that he was selling them for thirty bucks a pill. And I was like, that's crazy. I used to pay five dollars a pill for these. I'm not doing that. Right. I wasn't going to pay thirty dollars for a pill that I used to pay five dollars for, <laughs> and. But that seed had been planted in my head at that point. And, and in my head, I, I, I was going, you know, my probation officer hasn't called me over in a while. I don't even think he's going to call me over. I think I'm good to go. And I went to a college called Rutgers University in New Jersey, and it's in a large city. And I walked a couple blocks away from the campus, and I found a guy on the street who was selling heroin, and I was back to it. And and that guy actually became my drug dealer for the remainder of my time while I was in New Brunswick. Um, this was college, and you were there on a wrestling scholarship. I lost my wrestling scholarship. Okay. Uh, that, that didn't go so well. That was actually not directly related to drugs. I, I lost it because I got too many concussions within within two years, and I lost my medical clearance. Oh, I got it. So, 
But I mean, don't get me wrong, you know. You never know. The knee bone's connected to the hip bone type of thing. Right. So what were you majoring in then if you weren't doing wrestling? Well, I changed my major a few times. There was one point that it was English. There was another point in time where it was business administration. When I first went to college, though, I was going for pre-med when I first went. I failed Calculus two very quickly and decided that I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. Got it. Because I knew that I had to pass that. Right. And, you know, it was it was just too much at the time. And, and I wanted to party and I wanted to do what I was going to do and and... English seemed a whole lot simpler. Right. So that's that's how that went. Okay, so you're back on heroin. Oh, yeah, I'm back on heroin. Um, I had gotten a job at a, a very, very nice restaurant in that city called Stage Left, and um, I was working there. I, I was working in their kitchen, tending bar, um, making very good money. And so money wasn't a problem. Uh, if I wanted more, I would sell some drugs, and, you know, life seemed to be going okay. At mm-hmm. the time, I didn't have my parents on my back, and you know, I was I was doing my thing. The only problem was now all of this is really starting to wear me down. This grind, you know, right. trying to balance school, trying to balance work, trying to balance being a drug addict. And there were days where I, I, I it would really get to me, and I would just start start crying and and just really start beating myself up over things. And I knew all I had to do was talk to my mom. I I knew. And there were actually even a few times that I would tell my girlfriend at the time or that I needed help and and we would go to my mom's house and and I would go through withdrawals and she would say, are you ready to go to Narconon? And I'd say, I'm not. I'm I'm not doing it. And that that probably happened three or four times. And, And even the last time that I did it that way, there was... On the last day before I was ready to go back down to my apartment in New Brunswick, there was an interventionist sitting in my mom's living room who did an intervention on me, and I still wouldn't go. I, I refused to go at that point. What, what was your what was your thought process as to why you didn't want to do Narconon? Did you know that it might take maybe more of a responsibility? I think that's you? the thing that I was running away from is okay. responsibility. You know, there was that part of me that knew if I open this door, I'm going to feel that much worse if it doesn't actually work. There's no going back. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of like Pandora's box. Yep. You know, I, I knew that I, I had that knowingness that if I take it to that next step where I'm really making the efforts to stop, then I, it'll just be too hard on me. I don't, I don't know that I'll make it. You know, it's interesting. I know that your, your thought process and looking at it that way just had to do with the Narconon program. But I wonder if other addicts just look at that, look at it from that viewpoint, just as regards addiction in general. I mean, not addiction, rehab in general. I really like think they if, do. Yeah, because if I do rehab, now I have to take responsibility for my own life and, you know, take responsibility for the things that I've done that maybe weren't in my best interests or in other people's best interests. So I wonder if that isn't something that happens to addicts just in general. I definitely think there's something to that. Uh, I mean, at this point I do interventions all over the country and and I run into that constantly. You know, people are, it is absolutely fear that motivates people to not take that next step forward because they're scared to continue, but they're scared to stop and they're scared to go in any direction. So what they just wind up doing is being parked and, and they don't actually 
go anywhere. And that's just another reason that they used to continue getting high. That's a, I think that's, I just think that's an amazing point to make that there's a fear of continuing, but there's a fear of stopping. And so you can just get kind of stuck in the middle of that and do nothing. But probably the fear of continuing is a little bit less Mm -hmm. than the fear of stopping because the fear of stopping also includes a lot of pain, physical pain. So, you know, let's just continue. Was your girlfriend on drugs as well? No, I, I had a hard, fast rule of not dating girls that did drugs. I did enough for two people. Did she know you did? When she found out, then she knew. Okay. But it was one of those things where, you know, I did my very best to hide it from everybody. I got and it. I had a very busy schedule and I would never do it in front of her or, or at the house. But, you know, she was okay with us going out and drinking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that was okay. Right. But Well, it is a legal drug. Sure. I mean, it's and, a drug, no question, but it is a legal drug. Yeah, and denial is a powerful thing, too. Yep. It really is. And, yep. and there were, you know, lots of things that, looking back on the relationship, I think that, you know, she, she turned a, bli- a blind eye to because it was probably hard for her to confront what I had going on. You know, I don't blame her by any means, but right. I think it was tough on her, too. So this whole cycle continues for a while. Um, after my mother did that intervention on me, thus proceeded what I always call the worst year and a half of my life. Um, I got very, 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 very into smoking crack cocaine as well as doing the heroin. And there were times where I was smoking upwards of five, six hundred dollars worth of crack a day. And this is that's a lot of money, yeah, know, for someone who's a, a college student and working in a restaurant. I was making good money, but I started stealing. Um, from my girlfriend, from my parents when I would go visit, from random houses in the city. You know, I'd go around to parties that people were having and I would just steal things, pawn them or give them to my dealer or whatever it is that I felt like I needed to do at the time. I I sort of feel like I always have had a decent sense of what's right and what's wrong. And I knew that the things I was doing was very, very wrong. Right. And it was really starting to weigh on me. And eventually I actually decided that the only way out was for me to try to kill myself. Oh, man. And that's what I tried to do. And Did I, you uh, overdose or did you do something else? No, I, uh, I actually took a, one of my chef knives and I cut my wrists and my arms and, and I woke up with a team of paramedics in my apartment and several police officers and it was a very big scene, and, and I actually had to get blood transfusions for 36 hours and plasma transfusions along with it, and, and I almost I almost didn't make it. To this day, I have no idea how the paramedics wound up in my apartment because there was nobody else there. Okay, you know you're speaking to a mother here. You know this is hard for me to hear. I believe it. I believe it. Okay, I have two grown sons, yeah. so there you go. Yeah. Oh, man. My, um, I, I somehow made it to the emergency room, and... You know, they got me stabilized and actually in walks my mom. Again, I don't know how that happened. And, you know, she's trying to talk to me. The doctors aren't particularly interested in her being there. She's yelling at them. The doctors are yelling at her. I'm just laying there completely spun out and freaked out. And eventually, you know, I I had to have two surgeries, one to repair the tendons, one to repair the arteries, and one to, well, I guess three technically, and one to stitch me back up. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a room, 
and they actually cart me off to a psychiatric ward at that point. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. Totally. Oh, that's helpful. Uh-huh. They can put you on more drugs. Right. Oh. Yeah. And that's what they did. And I mean, I'm real out of it. I, I'm not really, I'm definitely not super coherent at the time. Um, but a couple days goes by and I guess my mom had been trying to get into this place to come see me the whole time. And my mom finally makes it in there and she sits down with me and she says, Derek, I will do one thing to help you. And there's only one thing that I'm going to do. Will you go to Narconon? And I said, no. Gosh, you still weren't ruined enough, Derek. Oh, my God. And about four hours later, I called my mom back and I said, okay. In those four hours, I was looking around at all the the crazy people that had just been in and out of that place for, you know, decades and everything. And and that was enough. I I said, okay, I'm not going to be that guy. And, and I called my mom and she started crying and she said, just talk to this guy. And she gave me a phone number of, uh, of one of the counselors at Narconon, Louisiana. And I called him and, you know, he said, look, man, I hear you've been through it. And, you know, you're in a mental institution right now. And, you know, you just tried to kill yourself and you've been on drugs for a real long time. And How old are you now? 32. 32. No, no, no. I mean, when this happens, sorry. No, I don't mean like now, now. I mean... 22. 22. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 21, actually. No. Right around there. 21, okay. 22, 21. something like it's that. Somewhere around there. So I'm talking to this guy and, and he's like, look, man, will you come? And I said, look, I got to do something. I've been fighting going to Narconon for a very long time at this point. Um... I just know that I got to do something, but I got a couple questions. And he said, all right, shoot. You know, what kind of questions you got? I said, how's the food? He said, it's okay, man. I said, are there girls? And he said, you can't do anything with them, but they're there. And I said, that's okay. (laughs) And I said, can I smoke cigarettes? I said, this is just be like way too much if I can't at least smoke a cigarette. And he said, you can smoke cigarettes in designated smoking areas. And I said, all right, man, one more thing. And he said, what is it? And I said, you got to get me out of here tomorrow or I'm not coming. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, look, dude, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen like that. He's like, you're like signed into a psychiatric hospital right. and like you're under those doctors care and they're going to like have to, you know, they have to release you, release you. Yeah. And I said, don't care. Figure it out. That's get me the out, deal. Get, get me out of here tomorrow and I'm coming. <laughs> and he said, all right, man, I'm going to do my best. And so the very next morning, they woke the, the people at this hospital woke me up like really early and I actually had to go to a meeting. And I, I there were like several doctors and, and other people that I'd never seen and they were all asking me a bunch of questions and kind of a blur. And at the end of it, they say there is the medical director of a treatment program in Louisiana who is willing to have you signed over to his care. And I'd never met this guy. And that, like, was the first big thing about Narconon that, like, really hit me. I said, wow, there's a a doctor that has no idea who I am, obviously in a very compromised position and definitely not stable, that's willing to sign me over to his care, never having met me, never having spoken to me, just taking a shot. Mm -hmm. And and that was very, very impressive to me. And I was like, point number one for Narconon. They (laughs) score a point right there. So... They released me, my mom, my girlfriend at the time, my brother, uh, they were there to pick me up. They said, we're going to dad's just so you can say bye. And, 
And then, uh, then we're going to the airport. So we go to my dad's house. I say bye to my dad and my stepmother and my little sister. That was a, uh, that was hard to say bye to my little sister. She was only nine years old at the time. Wow. And then they take me to the airport and, and I go to give my mom a hug. I'm like, cool, I could take it from here. I'm going to go. And she looks at me and just shakes her head. She's like, oh, uh-uh, I'm going with you. <laughs> and we get, on the air, we get on the airplane, and there's, like, no one on this airplane. I mean, nobody. And I'm like, Mom, can you, like, she's sitting right next to me. <laughs> I'm like, can you, like, go over there so I can stretch out a little bit? And she looks at me, and she shakes her head and says, no, no way. No. And so we get off the airplane, and there's a guy from Narconon who's there to, to, pick, me, to pick me up, I'm thinking. <laughs> And I go to give my mom a hug, and I say, okay, mom, thank you for getting me here. And she looks at me, and she shakes her head, and she says, no way. <laughs> and finally, we get to Narconon, Louisiana, and I'm standing right in front of the door to their withdrawal room. And at that point, my mom gives me a hug and just, like, starts crying. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I got to go. Right. <laughs> this, is, this is pretty heavy. And uh, she got me all the way to the door. And she you did. went and you went through. And I went through. I went through the program and changed my life. Uh, it's an unbelievable story. Now, talk to me about when you realized in the program and what step you were on. I know that there's withdrawal and I know there's the sauna. What point was it where you went, I think I'm going to be okay? There was... Uh, Right towards the end of the objective exercises portion of the program, I was actually laying in my bed at night and I was sort of doing, I was going through like all the things that I'd gotten out of everything so far because I knew I felt better. Mm -hmm. That was very easy to see. Sauna, I mean, I, I hadn't felt that good since prior to doing drugs in the first place, physically, mentally. Um, I, f I just felt really good. Right. But then as I was going through objectives, I started feeling better and better and just found myself in better and better moods throughout the day. And I, I like wanted to talk to my family more often. And I just felt really good about myself. And like I said, I was laying in bed one night and I said, man, you know, like, this doesn't even like really make sense to me. Like, what is it that I've really gotten out of doing this? I've had all these realizations that are really cool, but it doesn't really indicate that that's the thing that I've gotten and all of a sudden it like hit me in my head I felt better being sober than I did when I was on drugs and that's very simple to say but I think that's the number one thing that most drug addicts have a difficult time with is they are convinced that their life is better on drugs than it is off drugs and at that moment I realized that my life was better being off of them than it was being on them that's that's amazing. Yeah. But I mean, that's, but that's true. It's the high. It's, yeah. it's that feeling that people are trying to get and that you can now achieve that feeling just within yourself or, you know. Yeah, I felt good. I felt confident. I felt certain. The, that whole noise that was going on in my head for, you know, the entire time I, and even before being on drugs and I, I wasn't depressed. I, I wasn't anxious. I, I didn't, I didn't really have those problems that I sat in on a day-to-day -day basis. I knew that I was going to have bad days moving forward. I knew that I was going to have, you know, issues like everybody else. And like, you know, that's a part of life is, you know, accomplishing things and being able to get through things that are difficult. But I knew that right in that moment, I felt better 
than I had in so long, and I knew that drugs weren't a solution to those things for me anymore. Right. And relatively shortly thereafter, I I was sort of overwhelmed with, okay, cool, so how are we going to make this work? Mm -hmm. Because I, I didn't know how to make it work yet at that point. I didn't have the tools to actually do so. And luckily, that's what the rest of the program happens to be about, is gaining those tools to be able to really apply that feeling to the world and your life and and move forward doing those things. Right. That's why it's a complete program. You get all of it. You don't just feel good. You learn how to continue to feel good. Exactly. How would you compare your relationship? Well, let's just take your brother, Mm -hmm. your relationship with your brother, even compared to, I mean, obviously it's better than when you were on drugs, but even before you were on drugs, how would you compare your relationship with your brother as it is today? I mean, definitely better than when I was on drugs because I'm not lying to him anymore. So that helps quite a bit. Right. Like I said, before I ever got on drugs, I had those weird considerations that were probably just things in my head, you know, where, you know, I felt inferior to my brother about certain things and felt like he was better than I was. And I don't have any of that anymore Mm. because we're not the same person. Yes, we're identical twins. We look exactly alike. Right. We're very different. We've done very different things with our lives. My brother works in corporate America. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor at Narconon. Got it. And what does he do? What does your brother do? He works for LinkedIn, actually. Oh, really? That's what he does. Yeah. Oh, wow. He's been working for them for several years and he really likes it and for the most part. But I will say he's not passionate about his work. Okay. And he's actually relatively envious of me because I am passionate about the work that I do. Right. And my work has a much bigger reward, not financially. He makes a lot more money than I do and that's fine. Um, But his work is a means to an end. Whereas my work on a day-to-day basis is filled with purpose and direction. And it's not a means to an end. It is an end. Yeah. An end of addiction. It has a purpose. It has an end, an end result for, something, you know, worldwide, right. ideally. And, you know, that's what, what it is that we're going for. His has, you know, a timeline of, okay, when do I get to retire? Right. And, you know, that's not something I think about, whereas right. he thinks about it frequently. Yeah. So I would say that's, you know, a very big difference. And he's actually very jealous about that mm. with me. Okay. But I mean, at this point, we can actually talk about the things that bother us. Yes. You know, I I have the confidence and the, the confront to actually look at him. And if there's something that, you know, some problem I have with him, I can just say it to him mm-hmm. and, and, you know, either call myself on, out on it or call him out on it. And I think in many ways, me being able to do that has actually helped him be able to do that with me as well. Yeah. You know, because it's got to be that two-way street. Exactly. Um, and I would say in all reality, that's probably how it is with, all of my family members at okay. this point. And that's probably the biggest difference with all of my family members, you know? And I got to say there, you know, being able to convince myself of so many things that just weren't true, you know, I always had this consideration that my dad, you know, really wanted me to be a doctor and really wanted me to succeed and do well financially and socially and, and everything like that. And when I told him that I wanted to be a counselor, he was like, cool. That doesn't surprise me at all. I'm really happy for you. And it blew me away how, how simple it had been. You know, I, I was, this was something I was really nervous about was to tell my dad that I, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a businessman. Right. And, and he's like, great. I just want you to be happy. I don't care what it is you do. I don't want you to die. Yeah, exactly. And, and I was like, wow, you know, 
probably been that way the whole time. I just didn't think it was. Uh Um, And like I said, all those considerations that I had in my head, you know, once I realized they weren't real and probably never had been, I didn't have to continue making them real. Right. You know, I didn't have to, like, give them any power over me That's anymore. a very good point. Yeah. Very good point. How long after you finished the program did you start working at Narconon? Pretty much immediately. You went right in. Okay. Yeah. I knew, actually, before I finished the program that I was going to stay. Okay. Um, I had had a girlfriend while I, when I went into Narconon. Um, I took a good look at that relationship, and, and I decided, you know, I'm going to forgive myself for everything, and I don't think she can. Not to blame her for it, because it's not fair for her to be with someone who she can't forgive, and it's not fair for me to be with someone who can't forgive me. Right. So I I ended the relationship, and I was very sad for a couple days, and then I popped out of that, and I said, you know, I don't really want to go back to New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) What am I going to do with my life? And I decided that I'm not in a rush anymore to get through the program, that I was ever really rushing, but there wasn't, there wasn't really much drive to because i didn't know what i wanted to do right so i decided i was gonna you know help some students that were earlier on in the program and i really liked that Mm -hmm. and you know i started having staff members coming up to me say you know thank you so much for you know helping that that student you know they they really got a lot out of that or you know that really helped us and you do a really good job with it and and i started to have so much more reward just from you know working for a couple hours with other people and helping them than I ever did, you know, cooking or tending bar or lifeguarding or making pizza or any of the other jobs that I'd had. And I was like, this is like a whole lot cooler. I think I'm going to do this. Awesome. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I would imagine that having the background that you have and not that I wish it on anybody, obviously, but going through something like you went through makes your ability to do interventions or talk to addicts and help get them onto the program or through the program, I would just think it's kind of invaluable in terms of experience. It was one of the things that I really liked about Narconon in general is the staff there have not only experienced the things that I did um, in terms of the program, they were also addicts before, and they're not addicts anymore. And like I said, I'd been to other rehabs where, you know, I'd talk to some doctor who never had a drug problem and they would tell me, you know, I really understand what you're going through. And I would know that they didn't. And I'd call them out on it too. I'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Have you been an addict? Have you tried heroin? I mean, I've even asked them. I've been like, have you ever shot heroin? (laughs) Do you realize just how good it actually feels? I mean, give me a break here. And, and they don't understand. So when... When I went to Narconon and people would say, you know, they'd be like, dude, I get it. I've been there. I believed them because they had, you know, I I know that they had. And I I think that's what has actually made me the staff member that I've been the whole time I've I've been a staff member. And it's been about 10 years, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. And you go back and forth from Louisiana to the Narconon here in Florida, right? Yep. Awesome. Narconon coast to coast. Yeah, exactly. Well... Uh, thank Swamp you. Swamp to coast. Yeah, thank you for everything you do. <laughs> thank at, you. At Narconon. I mean, I just love that you are able to take your experience and turn it into helping other people. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I think 
you know, one thing this makes me think of is, especially if there's any moms listening, because it it's real to me that if I thought that my son had a problem, you know, I would probably look for things like this podcast. I'm hoping people are looking for things like this podcast that would give me help and give me hope. And I think the thing that rings with me is your mother just never gave up. Never. She knew about Narcanon, however she knew about it knew that there was something there that could help you. And she just never gave up with continuing to push you into doing it. And yay, mom. I've used (laughs) the story that my mother has done with a number of other parents that I've spoken with over the years. Because, I mean, there are some schools of thought that say, you know, parents, you just got to walk away because anything else is enabling your kid. Or enabling your loved one. You know, if you just keep offering them help, you're enabling and you're not helping the case. And I, I don't agree with that at all. I think it's completely ridiculous. The people that are on drugs, they don't have the ability to just stop on their own at that point. Right. They, they don't. That's the reality. That's why no one ever does just stop on their own. They need help. And if you walk away and you give up as a parent... When and if a tragedy happens, you'll never forgive yourself. That's right. And that's that's what I've told to a number of parents. And, and almost all of them, they go, yeah, you're right. I, I can't just give up. I can't just walk away. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's the one viewpoint of like, you know, if I'm continuing to give you money. Oh, and yeah. And I know that you're Don't doing give that, that money. You know, I could stop doing that. <laughs> but I don't think you ever want to give up on your kids. And, you know, I think the point is, and I'm going to keep dinging this home with every single podcast we do, there is a solution that does actually work. And it is the Narcanon program. And it does actually help. And it does actually work. So there is hope. And it's something that is available. And you can do it. And don't give up. Try that. You know, I I, I told Jason, because the first time Jason and I did the podcast, I went to graduation that night. Mm-hmm. And it was Lori. Is that her name? Lori, who graduated that night. And she said to me, she said, you know, I've been through 12-step programs. You know, so she doesn't work there at Narconon, which may now, but she didn't at the time. She had just been through the program, and she said, they don't work. This program works. Mm -hmm. This Hubbard technology actually works. And, you know, you hear about it from addict after addict after addict that has come through your program and is now clean. And, guys... There is hope. You just have to reach out for it. Derek, thank you for sharing your story. Very I mean, welcome. It, it's not a pretty story. You, oh my goodness, I had to um, really work very hard not to lose it in the middle of that one. You know, like I say, being a mom. Yeah. And Jason said that um, probably more often than not, it's moms that come in to Narcanon who are looking for help for their kids. You asked how your mother knew. We moms know things. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> that are in some other universe somewhere. I don't know. There's just I've gotten that, yeah. away with very little throughout my life in the long run, actually, because of my mom. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. Derek. It was a pleasure. Jason and I will be back next week. And uh, I don't know. Did you have anything you wanted to say? So um, Derek brought up a very valid point. And by the way, Derek, that's a great story. I'd actually never heard your full story. So um a valid point is that there is a profound difference between enabling and helping. And so that's something I want to talk about next week. Um, I wrote a blog about this about a year ago, and uh, 
a lot of people had a lot of things to say on the topic. And uh, there's a difference. There's a difference between enabling your addict and helping your addict. I get that. And they kind of get blurred. And so I want to kind of describe the differences. I like um, that. For next week. I like that. We'll do that. Okay, so then we'll be back next week, Jason. We'll see you then. Okay, cool. Thank you. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.